You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We would like to thank Warby Parker for their continued support of SpyCast, and welcome the new podcast, Pessimist Archive, to the SpyCast family. You'll hear more about both these later, but first, let's meet our guest. All right, good morning. This is Chris Costa, Executive Director of the International Spy Museum. Today we're joined by recently retired Lieutenant General Michael Nagata. The last position General Nagata served in was as the Director of Strategic Operational Planning at the National Counterterrorism Center. He started that position on May 13, 2016. General Nagata had a long and distinguished U.S. Army career. Most of that career was serving in special operations. We will post the rest of General Nagata's bio for our listeners on our website. So again, uh, good morning, General. It's great to see you again. Great to see you, Chris. Thank you. For, thanks for asking me to be here. Well, full disclosure, we've worked <clears throat> together in the past, and I'm excited about getting you to our listeners and uh, talking through the situation in Syria. So it's very timely. But I want to start first with some good counterterrorism news. Let's talk about al-Baghdadi being killed in right. the impact on ISIS. What are your thoughts on that? It is a very important uh, and, um, and commendable accomplishment. Uh, <clears throat> anyone who was involved, whether military or civilian, deserves an enormous amount of credit for this accomplishment. And uh, anyone who's been in the counterterrorism business knows that uh, what happened a few nights ago that led to the death of the leader of ISIS was the result of almost certainly years of painstaking, in some cases very dangerous work, to gather the information, the intelligence, establish uh, what you and I have long called a targeting cycle that uh, eventually led to a very precise, very effective, very successful operation uh, that has removed the senior leader of this terrorist movement 
Um, so I would argue that it was operationally and tactically magnificent. Um, it also has important strategic effects. Uh, unfortunately, I also believe the strategic effects will diminish with time. So maybe the simplest way of saying it is to borrow an old strategic adage that uh, I suspect many of your listeners are very familiar with. The removing Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi from his position as the leader of ISIS was necessary, but it is strategically insufficient for bringing an end to the ISIS threat, both inside the region and around the world. And there are other al-Baghdadis out there, correct? Indeed. Um, the, it's important that we remember <clears throat> that the leadership of the Islamic State, particularly in Iraq and Syria, although badly damaged from uh, more than four years of coalition operations against it, um, there, there is still a large residual element of that leadership who not only are, are combat veterans and have, been, have, and have learned by the experiences of the last five years, even though much of it has led to their military defeat, but many of them began their uh, terrorist uh, career as members of al-Qaeda in Iraq you know, more than a decade ago. Um, and uh, so this is a very experienced cadre of leaders. And it is certain that they knew that the coalition and the United States were targeting al-Baghdadi. And it, it would be unreasonable to believe that they did not develop contingency plans and make some preparations for replacing him. If a succession Enkan, plan. Right? right, exactly, a succession plan. Now, we'll, they, they will probably have difficulties implementing that plan, and depending on who they pick, he may or may not be as effective as al-Baghdadi has been, who has been very effective. But nonetheless, the, the, the results or the strategic benefits, I should say, of his removal, as I said a moment ago, will diminish with time. <clears throat> a good analog is to examine uh, the strategic value we derive from the death of Osama bin Laden. Um, in the early years, we derived substantial benefits, both tangible and intangible. But here it is many years later, what today in our ongoing struggle against al-Qaeda, how much value does his death provide today? In my view, they are negligible now. They were substantial years ago, but they have, uh, they have attenuated with the passage of time. So before we dive into the current situation, which is so important, mm -hmm. and after all, what we want to talk about is the CT risks, counterterrorism risks of walking away from the Kurds. Yes. But you've had experience with ISIS from the very, very beginning to include contact with other Arab right. populations, and you have experience with Kurds. Could you talk about uh, the training mission in those contacts sure. early on? Sure. Just give us a brief flavor for your experiences. Sure. Um, just to bracket it time-wise, um, in terms of becoming aware that ISIS was going to be a problem, and then eventually the, um, the, the efforts that led to the creation of our partnership with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is, I, I suspect most of your listeners, listeners know, was a very large force that we were able to aggregate in northeastern Syria uh, that was uh, uh, in large measure Kurdish and Arab um, to combat the Islamic State. Um, 
I, I began my own experience in this adventure in uh, late 2013, and uh, my, my direct involvement in this ended in late 2015. So I was attached to this for about two years. Um, in 2013, uh, I, I had recently taken command of what is called Special Operations Command Central, which as you know is the Special Ops Command of Central Command. Um, and I was asked pretty quickly by the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad to come back to Iraq and renew contact with what we today call the counterterrorism service in Iraq. Uh, back in the day when we were conducting major combat operations in Iraq, we very Iraq. capable, by the way, right? right. We, we we used to call them Iraqi soft. Yep. Uh, but it, it basically the same leaders, same operators that uh, I, I I and many others in the special forces world had known very well while we were, while, while we were conducting campaigns there. But anyways, so I, I flew out to Baghdad. I hadn't been there for about five years um, and uh, resumed contact with the leadership of the CTS. And they were quite worried. Um, and they were worried about something they called DASH. And I, I'll never forget the first briefing they were trying to give me of how much, uh, how, how much combat they were uh, being drawn into to combat Daesh, particularly in the western areas of Iraq. And I had to stop the briefing at one point, and I said, gentlemen, what is Daesh? And they told me. And, of course, now today we call it the Islamic State. But um, the And it became, and I realized at the time, this must be why the embassy asked me to come out here, because I don't think they understood what Daesh was either. Or if they I did, I, 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 their, their, their awareness was probably not a lot stronger than mine was. But regardless, the, um, so by the time they got done telling me what they were having to deal with, uh, I was pretty alarmed. Um, now, I, I won't go into all the details of what happened thereafter. Sure. It's sufficient simply to know that the Iraqis were right. And a few months later, in 2014, Mosul fell. Uh, we had uh, two-plus Iraqi divisions uh, strategically defeated. In many ways, they just... They just surrendered or ran, but regardless, um, they, uh, they lost control of this major city in Mosul, and pretty soon we had ISIS marching on Baghdad. Um, I, I won't, again, I won't go through all the history here, but uh, aside from the emergency we had in Iraq, we quickly came to realize that the problem was emanating from Syria, and so it would be strategically insufficient simply to successfully contest ISIS inside Iraq, we had to find some way to deal with their, uh, with their sanctuary in Syria. Uh, to make a long story short, that led to an enormous number of meetings, planning sessions, debates that ranged from Central Command down in Tampa all the way to the uh, policymakers here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and in the end, the policy choice was to seek ways to create some kind of indigenous fighting force in Syria to, uh, to use infantry parlance to close with and destroy ISIS on the ground because we recognized very early on that while we could uh, conduct a considerable air campaign to kinetically strike ISIS inside of Syria from the air, we, we knew that would be inadequate. There, we, there had to be some right. sort of clearing force on the ground. And that began what today we call the Syria Train and Equip Mission. Um, 
The, my focus was to try to find ethnic groups in northeastern uh, and eastern Syria that were willing to fight ISIS and, and not uh, to combat the Assad regime because we had not taken a policy position inside the United States that we were going to fight the Assad regime. Uh, we knew that would be a difficult mission going in, but the, the only way to know if we could do it was to try. Um, fast forward to the uh, near the end of my term, <clears throat> the, uh, the work to try to raise this, this tribal force or uh, indigenous force in Syria uh, had met a great deal of difficulty, but it was still ongoing. In the meantime, in, 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 in a rather serendipitous event, um, other elements of our special operations forces uh, ended up essentially saving a large Kurdish population in the town of Kobani, which is on the Turkish-Syrian yep. border, who were in danger of being annihilated by the Islamic State. Um, and once uh, that town was secured, uh, we discovered <clears throat> that uh, there were a very large number of Kurdish fighters who were determined to combat the Islamic State without our asking them to do it. Um, and in a series of conversations with them over several weeks, it became clear that we had found a force that was no, not only very eager to fight, but also quite competent at tactical operations, and one who was enthusiastic about uh, our, our, the prospect of being supported by American and coalition air power. <clears throat> Um, I'll end the story by saying that uh, after I had left command, um, some might argue because I left command, we started <laughs> making very substantial progress, uh, and the, the, the two efforts that were now underway, the, the conversation with the Kurds that was leading to this happy marriage that I just talked about, but also the relationships uh, that my efforts, not really my efforts, uh, the, the task force that was... Uh, um, that was part of my organization that was focused on establishing a uh, mostly Arab force. These two things merged into what we now call the Syrian Democratic Forces. Been much in the news lately. And the Syrian Democratic Forces <clears throat> have quite literally been everything we were hoping to establish uh, because they conducted s several years of combat operations, not only to protect themselves, but to advance the strategic goals of the international coalition. So Raqqa, uh, the entire Euphrates River Valley, many other parts of northeastern Syria besides. Mosul gets retaken. Right, right. Although the, the contribution of the Kurds on the, on the Mosul side, on the Iraqi side, came from, as you know very well, a different part of, yeah. the, of the Kurdish ethnic group. Um, the, uh, some people call this the Barzani yep. uh, element different of the Kurdish group. But nonetheless... On both sides of the border, Iraq and Syria, in large measure, what was happening was uh, the American and coalition effort was was uh, establishing a very strategically useful relationship with Kurdish elements on either side of the border that I've already described as enthusiastic about combating ISIS because they believed ISIS was a direct threat to them, um, a long tradition of military skill and experience and an affinity for working with international partners. So um, it, was a, uh, it was a fortuitous development on both sides, but very much relationship and experience-based. 
And from a policy standpoint, really, the Trump administration continued the yes. buy with and through, which yes. is the euphemism for some of what you've described, and you know right. that so well. So we have a five-year campaign, give or take some time, that, that significantly degrades ISIS. Right. And then recently, we had a significant policy decision. That's correct. So that's really what I want to talk about sure. in some detail. Does that five years of fighting undo or threaten to undo what we've done to degrade ISIS? That's a great question. I'm going to try to do this in a reasonably organized way. Um, to answer your direct question, it does not, in my judgment, completely undo what has been accomplished uh, both by uh, the Iraqis on their side of the border uh, the international coalition. Uh, I think the durable outcomes are probably dominated by the fact that I, I, I believe that is it is no longer possible for ISIS to recreate this proto-state-like right. entity physical that it, they had created, that where they're actually attempting to govern. Yep. They have they don't have to mingle with the population. They are the population. <clears throat> and they created what essentially was a ground army. Um, it was a sizable, skilled, and effective ground force. Uh, some people would call it an army. I call it an army. I, I don't think they can ever do that again. Um, I think they'd be foolish to try, um, because they've had to. Li they've, they've lived the experience of how how vulnerable both the proto-state and their unilateral army became to coalition air power. Um, so that's durable. Pretty much everything else, though, is 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 in doubt, in my view. Um, and uh, here's where the story becomes more unfortunate. Um, the um, uh, it, it's a matter of public knowledge. There's certainly many people who have written about this. Uh, so whether you know, back when you and I were in government service and we had the privilege of reading classified intelligence reports, but it's it's not a secret that despite uh, the accomplishment that I've just described. We shattered the proto-state. We, we, we certainly defeated their ground army, both in Iraq and Syria. Um, we have not destroyed this entity, uh, either militarily or politically. And sad to say, uh, when uh, the coalition declared major combat operations completed once the Euphrates River Valley was cleared, um, the bad news or the sad news is that numerically, on that day, we declared major combat operations over. ISIS at, on that day and still today is substantially larger than al-Qaeda in Iraq ever was in its heyday. I'm glad you brought that up. That's an important point. It's significantly greater. Significantly greater. Yeah. Now, damage to be sure. Yep. Damage and probably psychologically uh, uh, frightened, although I would argue that you know, there's a fair likelihood that our recent policy decision regarding Syria may have reduced the amount of fear they fear, uh, the, the amount of fear they have about uh, either U.S. or coalition action. Um, so that's one important uh, negative uh, uh, outcome, and that is the decision we've made um, does not assist. Uh, either local actors or ourselves or the international coalition in successfully dealing with 
what some people call the remnants yep. of ISIS, but I, 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 I dislike that term because it, it, it seems to contradict the fact that this, this residual element of ISIS is much larger than a very dangerous enemy that we had to commit substantial combat operations against back uh, during the time we were conducting major campaigns in Iraq. This is a very sobering, should be a very sobering reality for everyone in the region and for us that um, th th this is not a broken entity. And remnants also implies clandestine cells in an yes. underground you know a lot about that <laughs> as a special forces officer so talk about that for a moment yeah. do you think along with succession yeah. planning insofar as leadership right. conventional wisdom is that's always planned by our adversaries right what about this notion of clandestine cells yeah. unconventional warfare sure. in an underground yeah. do you think they significantly isis plan for the day after um, yes, I, I think there, we had good reason to believe, in, even while the major military campaign was going on, that there were, um, there were clear indications that at least some in ISIS were considering what I would argue as returning to their roots. Uh, yeah. you know, the, the AQI-driven uh, insurgency in Iraq, but now obviously they would revert to this in both Iraq and Syria. Um, I, you know, there... <sighs> There's been so much written about the topic of counterinsurgency that I, I don't want to I don't want to try to dive into all that um, because it would just take too long. I think the most important thing for your listeners to take away, if they've never had any direct experience with the the realities of counterinsurgency, is to paint what I would argue is a very important contrast. I've already mentioned that during the several years that ISIS had their proto state and a very large organized army or ground force. They were the population. They weren't mingled with some other population. They were right. the population. Um, so uh, it made them that made them very powerful because they didn't have to they didn't have to divert time energy to um, trying to control a potentially antagonistic population. They were completely united. And they had many grievances that they were taking they advantage did. of. They did, right. And they, they did a good job, at least in the early years, of playing to the perceived grievances or needs of local populations, uh, which helped them develop this unity where everyone here is ISIS. Um, now they've reverted to a counterinsurgency, and the most important operational impact or implication of that is they are now mingled with a population mm. that whether it is the United States or the coalition or the Syrians or Iraqis themselves, they have to care about. There are innocents there are, there are, um, that, that are mingled now with ISIS because they've reverted to this counterinsurgency in the shadows kind of lifestyle. And so now we have to be much more careful. We have to be much more precise. And we have to be much more aware of the psychological, emotional, and political impact among the innocent population of any efforts we engage against the adversary who, who is living amongst them. And you and anyone who's been deployed, you know this very well. The, you know, there's, when you're fighting something that's monolithic, you have enormous freedom of action. Because no matter what, you attack, you're attacking a part of your enemy. 
Right. When you're fighting a counterinsurgency, the bulk of the population and the bulk of the of the entity that you're having to operate in are people you cannot hurt and should not hurt and do not want to hurt. We will have more of Chris's conversation with General Nagata in just one moment. But let me first take a minute to tell you about the new Pessimist Archive podcast. Pessimist Archive is a history show about why people resist new things. In each episode, they look at the moment that something new is introduced, something that today we think of as commonplace, like recorded music, umbrellas, bicycles, cars, chess, coffee, the elevator, and so on. And they try to understand why it freaked everyone out. Hosted by Jason Pfeiffer, the show helps illuminate why people resist innovation and what it takes to move them to embrace it. We shouldn't be so afraid of new technologies, but people fear change. But history shows us that change isn't as scary as it seems. And of course, history repeats itself. The negative things we say today about our modern technologies are the same thing that people said hundreds or thousands of years ago. For example, the British resisted the umbrella in the 1600s. They mocked anyone who used it. Why? Because, among other things, it just seemed very anti-British. The Brits are hardy people who walk in the rain. They don't need umbrellas. And many governments banned coffee, including the governor of Mecca and the king of England. They worried that the drink would drive people to revolution. These are just some of the funny historical tidbits from the show. So check out Pessimist Archive wherever you enjoy your podcast. That's Pessimist Archive. So that's a great lead-in to a follow-on question, and our listeners will be very interested in this. And, and that's to say that what you just described demands and requires more intelligence. Yes. How is our intelligence picture going to be impacted by pulling out forces? Yes. The kinds um, of forces that we had on the ground yeah. in particular. Right. Um, I think it has a substantial impact, and I'll, I'll divide this into two functional areas. Uh, one way of describing intelligence collection. Of course, you're talking to a special forces officer, not intelligence officer. So for all intelligence professionals that are listening to this, I apologize in advance if I mangled <laughs> my description You know a little bit here. about intelligence. <laughs> um, there, are, there is, uh, is technology-based intelligence gathering, um, and then there is human-based intelligence gathering. Or said more simply, we either use hardware to gather intelligence, uh, usually some electronic form of intelligence, like intercepting phone calls, that kind of thing. The other form of intelligence, HUMINT is the acronym, as you know very well, uh, is establishing sufficient relationships with people who live on the ground in the targeted arena, and they, you have enough of a relationship with you, they will give you information that is of operational value. So both of these things are affected by the recent policy decision, but for slightly different reasons. In the arena of technical intelligence, as I think most people know these days, a very large portion, not all, but a very large portion of the intelligence we electronically gather is done by aircraft, whether manned or unmanned. Um, the, uh, our decision to uh, withdraw forces from at least parts of Syria um, render our justification for flying aircraft in that part of Syria uh, they make our justification weaker. Not It doesn't eliminate the justification because we can make a good argument. We have to gather enough intelligence just to protect our people. That's 
that's not impossible for other actors to argue with. For example, the, the Assad regime or the sure. Russians or the Turks, not impossible to argue against that, but it's not easy to argue against that because everybody feels an obligation to protect their people. But now when we express a need, but we also want to go beyond that, we want to gather intelligence against the Islamic State, I think there's a reasonable expectation that some of these other people that own airspace or just don't like the fact that the United States or the coalition is flying there to say, well, wait a minute, uh, I might be okay with you flying to protect your own people, but I'm not necessarily okay with you flying supposedly so you can collect them against the Islamic State. Right, there'll those, be suspicion. That's right. And, and some of these actors just won't want us to do it anyways. And they'll, they'll attack what they believe is a weaker logical foundation for us to be flying there. So that's the technical side. On the human side, um, I think this is probably more heavily damaged. Not, not destroyed, but I think, I think this right. is more heavily damaged. Because as you know very well, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners do, the ability to gather human intelligence is fundamentally dependent on the individual's collector's, individual collector's personal relationship with the people he's trying to harvest intelligence from. There, there has to be some degree of trust. There has to be some psychological, emotional affinity. There has to be some track record of, I'll, I'll render it over simply, hey man, I've never let you down, and I won't let you down this time. That's where, that last part I just said is where we're very vulnerable now. Because if an American collector or a coalition collector were to tell anybody, for example, in northeastern Syria, whether they be Kurdish or Arab, hey, I've never let you down, actually no American would probably say that. No professional collector would actually say that because it's patently false. That's right. We're it's extremely vulnerable. False. And that gets to the question of credibility. Yes. When you were talking about negative implications of the current policy, we didn't really talk about credibility, but that's what you just implied yeah, there. Right. So we not just have we don't just have credibility problem mm -hmm. with actors on the ground there, that's but correct. other partners, yes. some eighty partners. Yes, I, uh, you know, to pull out of some of the tactical or operational descriptions I've just given you, I'll, I'll tell you what I've been trying to convey to a variety of colleagues. Um, uh, in both formal and informal settings in the last couple of weeks. Um, my greatest concern about the policy choice that has been made here is the, the long-term negative consequences this choice is having and will continue to have, in my view, for many years, on... American credibility and American influence both inside this region and around this region and in other parts of the world. Now, for some listening uh, to our conversation, um, it's easy for me to imagine that some people would believe I am overstating the effects of this. I would like to believe I'm overstating. I would, be, I would sleep better at night if I were overstating this, but I don't think I am. So let me, let me dissect this a little bit. The, the, the negative consequences inside the region I've, I've mostly described already, uh, our ability to operate or fly, our ability to gather intelligence, I, I'm sure are being directly harmed and will continue to be harmed. Um, because 
any rational actor in the region is going to think, well, can I trust the Americans when they promise they're going to help, when they promise they're going to safeguard, when they promise promise they're not they're not going to do things I don't want them to do. The credibility right. factor again. Right. Can I trust them? Um, around the region, in other words, outside of Iraq or Syria, um, any country that borders this arena uh, is go- has to have doubts. And now we're talking about strategic doubts about how, re- how credible, how resilient is their strategic relationship with the United States. Now, people in my government may think, well, that's irrational. You're mixing apples and oranges. Just because we did something you find unfortunate inside Syria doesn't mean we're going to let you down. But I think anyone who recognizes that's not how the human mind works Mm. will realize that whether you're a leader in Jordan or you're a leader in Lebanon or you're a leader in Israel or you're a leader in Iraq, there's going to be an element of doubt in your mind. And it's going to be difficult to remove that element of doubt. It's not impossible to remove it, but you cannot remove it quickly because only demonstrated reliability over a protracted period of time can remove that doubt. Hopefully that's exactly what we'll do. But for some period of time, we're going to be dealing with at least a kernel of doubt in all the regional actors around Iraq and Syria or within Iraq and Syria itself. Even more broadly, um, if you have been a strategic ally of the United States, um, much of that relationship is fundamentally dependent on that international actor's perception of the credibility of our assurances Mm -hmm. that I'm oversimplifying this terribly, but I don't want to go on endlessly here. You know, we basically told any number of actors in the NATO alliance, in our alliances in the Far East, everywhere around the world, when the going gets tough, we will be there for you. Human nature tells me, my understanding of human nature tells me that whether we like it or not, we have implanted a kernel of doubt on that assurance globally. Now, it is not unrepairable, as I've said a moment ago. Demonstrated reliability in ensuing months and years can eventually remove that kernel of doubt. But this kernel of doubt, and in some places it won't be just a kernel, it'll be a stone, but regardless of how big that doubt is, it will take time and effort to remove that doubt and there is a strategic price to be paid for this doubt that we are, I believe we are already paying and we will continue to pay for a long time. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
great job of, of outlining the strategic implications insofar as credibility goes. Yes. Insofar as regional concerns. Right. What about the detainee issues, those future potential terrorists? Let's talk about that. Yes. Al-Hal, a refugee camp. Yes. Talk about the strategic implications of foreign fighters still on the ground in Syria. Yeah. Their future is, as of yet, undetermined. Yeah. Let's talk about that for yeah. a couple minutes. Yes, it, this, is a, this is such a, a complicated topic, but I'll, I'll try to do this um, reasonably quickly. The, for, for, let me start with just the fact that uh, as I've tried to think about how the trajectory regarding either the ISIS-related detainees or the refugees and displaced persons, and there is some overlap between these two populations, as you know. Um, I, I've been searching for the last couple of weeks for a path where this ends reasonably well for the U.S. and the coalition, mm -hmm. and I have been unable to find it. In my judgment, there is nothing but bad endings that will come out come out of this. I, I, I would like to be wrong about that. I hope I am wrong about that. But I, am, I, I have been unable to come up with a good ending for this. And, it, and that breaks in at least two directions. And we could end up with both of these outcomes. I hope not. I hope at worst we only have one of these outcomes. But mm -hmm. I we assuredly are going to get at least one. There's a fair possibility we'll get both. So what are these two outcomes I'm talking about? The first one is uh, regarding the refugees and, refugees and displaced persons. There are thousands of them, and they've been primarily under a, a SDF, or Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, provided security blanket. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that security that has allowed non-governmental organizations, USAID and many others, to provide support for these uh, displaced persons and refugees. Um, it's hard for me to imagine how there is a happy landing for these displaced persons and refugees um, because unfortunately nobody wants them and or nobody likes them. Uh, the, uh, no one in the region is going to want to accept them. Uh, the, the, the regime itself in Syria is antagonistic to this population um, and now they have essentially the security blanket has been removed, which also, which also, if it hasn't eliminated, I'm sure it's seriously degraded the ability of both international and non-governmental organizations to provide food and clothing and medicines. Not to mention de-radicalization. Right, right. We haven't even talked right. about it. And, and that. I'm, I'm going to get there, I promise. <laughs> the, uh, um, so we could end up with a humanitarian catastrophe regarding right. these thousands of refugees and displaced persons. I hope that doesn't happen, but it, it's a plausible outcome. And, and getting back to the United States specifically here, there's going to be a large chunk of the world, in my view, who's going to blame the United States for this outcome. Now, we can make a reasonably rational argument, well, hold on a second. You know, the, the, these aren't our citizens. We exerted ourselves for a long time to protect them. It, it, shouldn't other actors in the region step up and safeguard these people? We can say that. It won't be particularly plausible to anybody in the region or the international community. The, there are a lot of people who will point out our policy decision and say, y you began this chain of events that led to this horrible humanitarian outcome. 
again, I hope it doesn't happen, but it, I, I'm very worried it's going to happen. Now, on the detainees, uh -huh. um, you know, the because, well, first of all, I want to give the Syrian Democratic Forces enormous credit. This is not something that was part of the, quote, original deal we had with them, That's that right. they were going to end up with thousands of detainees on their hands that they had to create makeshift prisons for and dedicate a very large chunk of their of their fighting force to safeguard and secure and and feed and shelter and everything else so they deserve enormous credit for having held on to these people humanely and effectively for far longer than i think they ever imagined they would um but it's still a very dangerous complex environment so it's been a challenge for both the United States as well as the international community to do what we would all expect our governments to do is humanely but effectively exploit these detainees for valuable intelligence. Uh, illuminate their networks, understand what their plans and intentions are, understand what their capabilities both are and maybe have been developing, were developing before these people got captured. This is priceless intelligence value. But it's been so difficult to get into northeastern Syria um, that we we certainly have not exploited all of them. I, I, I don't know what the precise numbers are, but we've probably only exploited a fraction of them to their full intelligence value. With time, in theory, we would have gotten through all of them, and it would have been a treasure trove of yeah. valuable intelligence. The ability to do that now is gone. That's right. Without it's forces on the ground. Right. Now, this begs the question, what was the value of something you're never going to know? Well, it's unknowable. Yeah. But any, I think any experienced intelligence professional has to be looking at this as a huge strategic opportunity that has been lost um, to potentially thwart future threats, disrupt developing networks, uh, or just understand the mindset and the thinking inside of ISIS. Now, the convergence, the displaced population and ISIS. Mm -hmm. um, we, we already were concerned about some overlap between these two things while we had the relationship we once had with the Syrian Democratic Forces. Both the SDF as well as the coalition were working to prevent that overlap from growing because within that overlap comes radicalization of an otherwise nonviolent population. Our ability to prevent that overlap from either existing or more worrisome from growing is also significantly attenuated. So I think, unfortunately, we can expect a wave of radicalization inside some of these some of this vulnerable population that previously could not have been done. And let's not forget that Al Baghdadi himself was likely radicalized in yes, indeed. In he U.S. He, in, custody in, in right? many ways. He he's kind of he's kind of the 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 model of how successful capture and internment of a terrorist or insurgent can lead to a bigger problem, and that's one man. We could see. You know, and I don't want to exaggerate this, but th there could be a future leader of ISIS that emerges from so. this overlap between released terrorist detainees and this vulnerable displaced population that previously we were doing a reasonable job of segregating from each other. Now there's no way to prevent them from merging. 
So stepping back again mm-hmm. from an alternative point of view, what if the U.S. homeland is not affected in the next few years, yeah. that regional right. political violence <clears throat> plays out, yeah. and then there's going to be some population in the United States of pundits, experts, mm-hmm. and, and just average citizens that are going to say, right. we told you so. Yep. The nation is protected. There's yep. been no terrorist right. attacks. Yep. It, it's this dilemma of counterterrorism yeah. professionals. Sure. So how do you square mm-hmm. that idea of non-attacks yep. w- with our... 2018 counterterrorism strategy and how do we square the current policy right decisions with all of that well i'll start with the last part first i I can't square our most recent policy decisions with the things that at least i personally think we're going to be confronted with and therefore the things we're going to have to do whether we want to or not Uh, i'm unable to square the two um but i think you're asking I i think the way you're characterizing this is quite accurate. There are going to be many people who, uh, who, who will believe, who probably do believe now, that, well, this, this may be very unfortunate, what is now happening in, in Syria, but it's not going to lead to another 9-11. So the degree to which we should care about this shouldn't be necessarily all that mm. high, because I don't see how this creates another 9-11. I, I can understand why anyone might think that. I don't think that's, I don't think that's likely to play out that way, not, not that we're going to have another 9-11, but I, I think what they're, what they're missing is several facts that will draw the United States into contesting or combating ISIS, whether we want to or not. The first fact is that despite the extraordinary military campaign that the U.S. and coalition have waged to destroy, as I've said, the proto-state and the army of ISIS, the global network that ISIS has created in only five years, this has been a, because f- ISIS didn't exist more than five years ago, it's only five years, ISIS has created a global network that is today larger than the original Al Qaeda network around the world ever became. And Al Qaeda worked on their global network, or has worked on their global network for over 20 years. So what I, I despise the Islamic State, but in terms of building a global network, they have been magnificent. They have been so much better and right. so much faster and so much more effective. More media savvy. Yes. Propaganda. Right, exactly. As much as I hate them, I have to give them credit for the scope, the size, and the sophistication of a global network. They're, they're to use our, you know, you and I both serve in the military, no, the, this is, you know, they're, they're the mod two yeah. of a global terrorist network is way better than mod one, which was Al-Qaeda. Um, I, I, it's, so the United States is going to have to care about that, whether we want to or not, because that's going to create threats to so many of our partners and allies around the world, whether they're in North Africa or Western Europe or Eastern Europe or South Asia, or East Asia. You know, think about Marawi City in the Philippines. That's right, um, which we, didn't, we completely didn't expect right, that. Right, right. We can tell ourselves we're not going to care about that. There's no way we're not going to care about that because those strategic alliances and partnerships are, are strategically vital to the United States. So that, that's one aspect. We're just not going to be able to walk away from the danger of this global network. But the one I worry about most, Chris, 
is um, I, I suspect some of your leaders are just going to want to stop listening to me after I say this, but I, ISIS is the most inspirational terrorist movement I have personally ever had to deal with. Mm. They don't inspire me. They don't inspire anybody that I love, but their ability to do, we actually have a term for this now, inspired terrorist violence. Yeah, that's right. Right? Now, of course, it would be foolish to me to, for me to say that ISIS is the first terrorist organization to ever inspire anybody to violence. That would be foolish. There's been a long, probably since the dawn of human civilization, terrorists have been inspiring people to kill. But ISIS' ability to inspire people to violence is like nothing I have ever seen. And it's driven us to actually have a term of art for this because it's been such a problem. It's true. And what I mean by this is a terrorist movement like ISIS getting someone that they have never met. There's been never been a physical face-to-face -face meeting between this vulnerable person that they wish to make a terrorist and an actual ISIS member. They haven't trained him. They haven't paid him. They have given him no real ideological or quasi-religious training. They, th there is really no tangible connection between this individual and ISIS. And I, but when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi gave that speech many years ago, I think most of your listeners probably remember, I'm paraphrasing heavily here, you know, where, where he, he tried to tell the entire world, if you can come to Iraq or Syria, we would love to have you. We are trying to build a state here. Remember the speech about yeah. we need doctors and we need That's right. shopkeepers and what have you. But he also said, but if you, for whatever reason, if you cannot make it to Iraq and Syria, do not worry. Stay where you are, use what you have, and kill who you can. And what emerged after that? Orlando, San Bernardino, Manchester Bridge, that truck driver in Nice, Marawi City. I mean, the list is endless. Well, today, I, it occurred to me when I woke up, it's Halloween. <laughs> we were both in place working counterterrorism at senior levels yep. in what happened in New York City, the right. bicycle path right. uh, attack by Saipov, right. which Saipov just uh, right. responded to right. everything you just outlined. Right. And unfortunately, I'll add one other thing which makes this all this even more depressing. Uh, this is a personal opinion here, but it's a strongly held one. There are some people who I've told what I've just told you who say, but Nagata, the, you know, but that, that's not a particularly f dangerous form of terrorism. I mean, somebody picking up a butcher knife and stabbing a neighbor because he watched an ISIS video. I mean, it's very unfortunate, of course, very regrettable. Of course. But that has a, doesn't have strategic consequences. That's right. My answer to that is that's not the only option available to the inspired attacker. Yes, picking up a butcher knife is nice and convenient, but you're not going to kill a lot of people. But it's important to remember that truck driver in Nice several years ago, he killed as many people as a large truck bomb would kill. Mm. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a phenomenon going across the entire world that everyone, will, I think, will instantly recognize when I say it. The increasing availability of increasingly stronger, more capable, more powerful technology is a facet of human existence now, mm -hmm. right? 
my iPhone today is way better than my iPhone just a couple of years ago. And a commercial hobby drone today is way more capable than it was just a year ago. Or an autonomous vehicle, things right. that we wouldn't have even envisioned exactly. a decade Exactly, ago. and all these things are commercially available. Right. Right. So now when ISIS says, use what you have, kill who you can, the array of use what you can now includes a rapidly expanding array of high technology, very powerful instruments that can all be turned to malign purposes. So this this is a this is this has already become and will become an even stronger strategic weapon for organizations like the Islamic State. And I'll end by saying, unfortunately, as the as the director of strategy at the National Counterterrorism for the last three years, what what I believe I was observing uh, across the, the international landscape was many terrorist groups learning this from ISIS. And I'm talking about terrorist groups that have nothing to do with what we euphemistically call Salafi jihadism, whether they're neo-Nazis or right. right-wing supremacists or ecological terrorists, I don't care. Even if they ideologically hate ISIS, it is absolutely rational for them to be saying, hey, they, but this inspired violence thing, there's something to this. And we're starting to see other terrorist groups mimic this because they've learned it from the Islamic State. And not just that, kind of beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about, but they can also shop ideologies. Yes. They can use social media. We yes. haven't even touched on that. Right. We could be here all day <laughs> talking about the dynamic, and we're painting a really dire picture. All that said, yes. in your role working strategy, yep. what are the right objectives for a counterterrorism yep. campaign in the future? You've laid that out. And of course, we're not soothsayers, but right. we have to look at the future. Sure. What are some insights that you could provide? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking this. And uh, this is one of my favorite topics. And you and I have actually talked about this previously. Uh, so you probably can anticipate everything I'm going to say. But for the benefit of your listening audience, I'll, uh, I'll try to get do this in a reasonably organized way. First of all, we absolutely have to preserve and where necessary nourish or make even stronger our ability to do the kinds of things that led to the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi a couple of nights ago. You know, the, the precision, the intelligence gathering, the, I mean, the magnificent targeting machinery and, and professional expertise that has been developed uh, both in the United States and in many of our international partners um, over the last almost 20 years has been phenomenal, and we should preserve every stitch of that. Um, the um, and, and, and we've seen the things we've learned how to do, both in everything from intelligence gathering to targeting to precision operations. That, that's, that's had cascading benefits for many other forms of national security. Um, so we should absolutely continue to sustain that, and, and, and if we can make it even better, we should do that. But that is our strength now. And, and where we have not made similar progress is in what you and I typically call non-kinetic counterterrorism. These are things like contesting the message or the ideology mm -hmm. of a terrorist organization, increasingly on the internet, as you know very well. Stopping terrorist travel. And this is no small task in an era 
where the world is very busy liberalizing international travel. But we have to somehow prevent a tiny fraction of the world from getting on airplanes or ships or what have you and doing international travel because terrorists have to travel. Um, the Denying them their resources, uh, whether it's money or any other form of resource, you know, prevent them from garnering these things because they have to have resources to operate and in some cases just to survive. But the one that worries me the most and the one where I think we need to, the greatest amount of progress, uh, it's, in, I personally believe it's our largest counterterrorism strategic deficit, both as a nation and as an international community, is both the ability and the capacity to prevent people from becoming terrorists. There are terms of art for this that you know very well. Terrorism prevention is one. Countering violent extremism is another. I, I don't really care what you call it. It all amounts to nations and societies everywhere becoming much more effective at identifying and understanding how people in their communities, in their societies, might become radicalized and ultimately become mobilized to violence. This is an incredibly difficult mission area. And no one's got that right. Yeah, what, there are small elements, I would argue, are pretty close to getting it right. There is no nation that I am aware of that's gotten this right. Agreed. Um, certainly, if one just considers the international community writ large, we are... This is an area we are not succeeding in. Mm -hmm. And in large measure, it is because this has never been the kind of either policy or resource priority that kinetic counterterrorism has been That's for the last so 19 true. years. Um, we throw enormous policy support and resource support and policy support. You know, the I got your back, it doesn't matter if something goes wrong, I am determined to... to to give you top cover because you have to keep going. That's policy support. We we throw enormous amounts of all three at kinetic counterterrorism, and I'm glad we do, and I don't think we should abandon that. But we have to find a way to give something like that to the people that do counter-messaging, terrorism prevention, um, contesting extremist use of the internet, Credible denying voices. resources. Yes, exactly. The the The... I, I've tried very hard, particularly in the last three years, to, to carefully examine how, mu how much manpower, how much money, and how much sustained serious policy support do these other things get. And I, I doubt it will surprise you. I doubt it will surprise most of your listeners. It gets a tiny fraction of the amount of support we give to kinetic counterterrorism. Now, I'm not trying to suggest... We should just duplicate everything we give to kinetic CT and just dump all that on non-kinetic CT. The absorptive capacity doesn't exist in this part of counterterrorism. And, and, and counterterrorism pressure works. The right. Kinetic. It does. It does work. I don't, I, I'm not arguing we diminish any right. of that. We should s absolutely sustain that. But the, in many cases, these, these non-kinetic mission areas are, are, are almost being asphyxiated for lack of money, people, and policy mm -hmm. support. There are enormously courageous, both governmental and non-governmental actors that I've met all over the world who are striving to prevent young people from becoming radicalized and ultimately, ultimately 
ultimately becoming terrorists. There are people in the commercial world. You know, some of the major tech companies are trying to contest extremist propaganda on the internet. But it's it's mostly scattershot, uncoordinated, unsynchronized, um, and um, and 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 too often what I see is governments are kind of verbally exhorting people to do it, but in terms of real assistance, real um, or substantial resource support, or just policy support, which in many ways is the most important. National leaders, whether it's in the United States or anywhere around the world, every time they have the microphone, they're saying how important this is, how we have to invest in it, we have to get better at this, and and we we know things will occasionally go wrong, but that's necessary if we're going to learn how to get better. It's it's an intangible, but it is irreplaceable. And everything I just said, by the way, Chris, as you know very well, policymakers around the world constantly provide kinetic counterterrorism. Every speech, every public remarks. I, I want to praise our soldiers, our sailors, yeah. our airmen, Marines. Uh, you know, every time one of them is injured or killed, we mourn for their families. We're doing everything possible to support their loved ones. But the most important thing we can do is persevere. We're going to get even better at this as a way of honoring their sacrifice. When's the last time anybody heard something like that said by a major political leader in any country when there's been a failure or an unfortunate happening in the world of counter-messaging yeah. or the world of terrorism prevention. Yeah, you don't I, can't, I can't think of one no. time I've ever heard that. And yet what's interesting is, it, it, I think you covered it very well, there is a gap between the resources yes. that, that are employed for that yeah. fight, and yet everyone says counter-ideology yeah. is so crucial. Right. Uh, and yet we do have a prevention architecture in the current strategy. We do. The, the long-term, though, solution is impl uh, proper implementation. That is correct. And to take those best practices and apply it. But right. it, is a, uh, it is a long road. So let's, let's, again, let's dive into another issue that's really important. And we can't talk about the Syrian policy without talking about this battle for influence. Yes. And this gray zone con conflict that... General Votel, mm -hmm. I like to credit him with mm -hmm. really talking and making us all think about right. gray zone right. conflict. So right. let's talk about the gray zone in terms of, we talked about the ISIS fight, right. but what about the implications on this idea of influence? Yep. Uh, what did we cede to Turks, to Russians, to Iranians? And then just work in, just, just yeah. for a moment, the Shia Crescent idea sure. that you've talked about before. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll stay focused on the region, given the, the way you framed your question. But if you want me to make comments about outside the region, I'd be happy to do that as well. Um, the, as I've already suggested uh, earlier in this conversation, um, we, 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 whether we intended to or not, um, our credibility and our influence uh, with both friends and enemies in this region has been materially weakened. And I believe that will endure for quite a while. It's not unrepairable, but it will take serious effort to repair it and serious time. Uh, specific, I'll, I'll try to take this in three chunks. First of all, um, the Iranians. Um, certainly everyone in the region that I know of, I think many observers internationally are aware that the Syrian, oh, sorry, the, Iraq, the Iranians have long desired uh, and have exerted themselves considerably uh, towards creating 
Some people call it the land bridge to the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. uh, some people call it the Shia Crescent. It, I, for me, it, all these terms are mostly interchangeable, but, but it, it is rather obviously strategically valuable for Iran to have the ability to move information, personnel, weapons, money, other forms of resources um, from Iran across Iraq, across Syria, uh, into places like Lebanon, uh, or just project into the Mediterranean, which gives them access to all kinds of other places around the world. So it, it, it's, a, it's a rather, for any strategist, I think this is a rather obvious, you know, a, a rather obvious strategic value to Iran. So they've invested in building this for a long time. And oh, by the way, their relationship with Hezbollah in Lebanon is materially assisted by this land bridge. Now, to one degree or another, this land bridge has existed for a long period of time. It, it's had its problems. When we had 100,000 troops in Iraq, for example, several years ago, major problem for Iran, right? Because there was this enormous military, U.S. military presence essentially blocking much of their access to this land bridge. Of course, when we withdrew, it got easier. But then the civil war in Syria erupted. That induced friction. Um, the, uh, of course, Turkey uh, borders much of this land bridge. And so long as the, the relationship between Turkey and Iran was antagonistic, that also induced friction in their ability to use this land bridge. Didn't make it, none of these things made it impossible, but it was harder for the Iranians to use this land bridge. Okay, fast forward to today. While... The American presence in northeastern Syria had no mission that I'm aware of to frustrate Iranian use of the Shia Crescent. It had a rather predictable inhibiting value for us. Right. It made it a lot harder because the Iranians didn't want to come into conflict with the Americans. So an implied in Syria. mission. Right. Um, and of course, because we had this, this SDF army doing our bidding, they were our strategic allies, that probably had an even larger inhibiting factor sure. on it, in, or, or maybe said better, it induced a significant amount of friction into Iran's ability to use the land bridge to the Mediterranean. Some Again, deterrence, maybe? Yeah, deterrence, probably mostly, because it's not like either the Kurds or the Arabs who were fighting with us or we ourselves. We had no mission to go after Iranian activity. But if you're an Iranian, it's rational to think, damn it, I've got all these Americans and I've got this very large army they've created. I, I need to. I have to find a more inconvenient way to do this because I don't want to collide with this. Um, well, of course, that's mostly gone now. So if you're an Iranian planner or an Iranian operator, you're probably breathing a sigh of relief right now. Oh, man, thank God they're gone. Now I can mm. get back to the way I would prefer to operate in my land bridge. Um, and so we should expect an increase in Iranian activity. We tend to call it malign activity, Iranian malign activity across this land bridge. I think it's irrational to assume that they wouldn't take advantage of our departure. In terms of the Russians, it's a kind of a similar story. Um, they, they care a lot less about this land bridge, but they absolutely care about the survival of the Assad regime, as I think everybody knows. And regional influence. Right? Their regional influence, they've, you know, I mean, going back to when they were the Soviet Union, they, they for rather obvious strategic reasons, having 
an ability to operate in the Middle East is a is a gr- terrific advantage either for the old Soviets or or the modern Russians. It, it's an, we we may not like it, but it is an undeniable advantage for them to have a presence in the Middle East. Um, but and the last one is an intangible, I suppose. But it I wouldn't be surprised to find out. I'm not a Russian expert, so I'm speculating here. But I wouldn't be surprised to find out that this is actually the the greatest value for Russia. Um, there. They have to be deriving an enormous amount of not just strategic, but emotional satisfaction from having arguably done such a good job of interfering with our aspirations and activities in Syria that we are now retreating. If I were a Russian, I'd be I'd be having a victory party right now. That's an um, interesting point. So it, this has been an uplifting moment for the Russians. At the same time, at the same time and in large measure because of the fact that this is a um, this has been a real downer for the United States and for all our allies and partners in the region that you know if an ally or partner is watching this they have to be concluding you know in the never-ending contest between the Americans and the Russians in this particular case the Russians won and that has strategic consequences if that is an attitude that any of our allies and partners are adopting that ha- that will have consequences for us, I, I, and I'm not, I don't want to overstate this. We're not doomed, you know. Not, our alliances and partnerships aren't shattered because of this. But this, this injects an element of doubt. The word I used uh, many minutes ago here. This this is why I'm very concerned about this element of doubt that has now been created, whether we intended it or not. Finally, the Turkish government or the, the Turkish people. Um, I was asked the other day if I thought that. Um, now that we've essentially acceded to Erdogan's desire that we leave northeastern Syria, um, does this reduce the scale of our strategic dilemma with the Turks? Um, in uh, my answer to that then, and my answer that I thought about it more since then, I think my answer still is: I wish it reduced the tensions and difficulties we have with not just President Erdogan, but with the Turkish government writ large. Um, I actually think this increases our dilemma with the Turkish government. Now, it, I can imagine some of your listeners thinking, what the hell is Nagata talking about? We gave Erdogan what he wants. We gave him freedom of action so he could go after a, an entity that he believes is a direct threat to Turkey. Create the, a buffer, the, yeah, safe right, zone. Right, um, right, plus give him the opportunity. Um, I'm actually very worried about this, the possibility I have no reason to believe it's eminent, but I'm very worried about the possibility the the Turks may now engage in the forced expulsion of some of the refugees that they've accrued inside of Turkey for the last five years. But that's a different story. But here's the reason why I think it compounds the dilemma as opposed to eases the dilemma. Yes, we have acceded to what Erdogan wants. He now has the freedom of action, as he is doing, to attack the Kurds. Um, but at the very same time, It, it has led to a strategic relationship between this NATO ally and Russia. I mean, we were already worried about the prospective sale of those, that very sophisticated air, air defense missile system. We should be a lot more worried now because now there has been a 
quasi-military, quasi-security agreement signed between a NATO ally and the government of Russia in an area where we have enormous strategic interests. And they're working together in that space. Right, right. So that, that is an unintended, significant strategic consequence that in large measure, I think, nullifies any benefit we derived towards reducing tension with Turkey by withdrawing from northeastern Syria. I think, I think it overwhelms those benefits. But unfortunately, it goes even beyond that. Um, because um, it, I, I can imagine many policymakers in my government, maybe people in the embassy in, in, in Ankara, thinking that what I'm about to say is irrational. But my experience in human nature is when, when you accede in this way that we have done to someone like President Erdogan and the Turkish government, it's not irrational to think, wow, all we had to do was mostly verbally pressure the United States, and they acceded to our demands. This is not necessarily a strong actor in this part of the world. Perhaps they were once, but if they're going to give up this easily, this is a sign of weakness. And that reduces my enthusiasm for future cooperation with the United States, because why should I exert myself to cooperate with an actor who's, who is weakening in my region? So I, I wish I could believe that, the, that our agreement with the Turkish government to re- remove our forces will lead to an easier or better or less fraught relationship with Turkey. Unfortunately, I've come to the conclusion it will have the exactly opposite effect. We will continue this conversation in just one moment, but let me take a minute to tell you more about our friends at Warby Parker. Warby Parker was founded with a rebellious spirit and a lofty goal, to create boutique quality eyewear at revolutionary price point. Prescription eyewear shouldn't cost you more than a plane ticket or a new iPhone. By circumventing traditional channels and engaging with customers directly through their website and retail stores, Warby Parker is able to provide high quality, good looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. Available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores, glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. What I find to be the coolest thing about them is that Warby Parker is eyewear with a purpose. Almost 1 billion people worldwide lack access to glasses. This means that 15% of the global population cannot effectively learn or work, which is crazy because glasses were invented 700 years ago. We should be on top of this problem. Warby Parker partners with nonprofits like VisionSpring, to ensure that for every pair of glasses sold, a pair is distributed to someone in need. Warby Parker believes that everyone has the right to see. But what about me? I'm the most difficult person on the planet for whom to buy glasses. My dirty secret is that my ears are at slightly different heights. So when I wear glasses, I usually look like someone just punched me in the face. I'm that guy who stands at the drugstore sunglasses rack for 45 minutes, trying on every pair before leaving in frustration. Need help like me? Take the quiz. Answer a few questions and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. And they have their free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses and try them on for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com spycast to order your free home try-on. 
Take the quiz to find a pair that's perfect for you today. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses, and lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Blue light filtering lenses are also now available. Have an iPhone X? Make sure to download Warby Parker's app, where you can use their brand new virtual try-on, allowing you to try on eyeglasses, seeing the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your phone. Warby Parker, a new concept in eyewear. So all of this is very sobering, and there's a lot for us and our listeners to think through. My final question really relates to the impact that you've had on counterterrorism thinking, particularly in this country, although you've had an impact internationally as well. As you reflect on your work since you've retired and left service, your impact on special operations, your impact on counterterrorism thinking, what final reflections do you have to offer our listeners? Thank you for the question. Um, I retired almost exactly 90 days ago now. Um, now, of course, my, my first several weeks were just moving all my household stuff <laughs> out of, off of an occupied. army installation <laughs> into a new place, which is an, an enormous pain in the butt for anybody who's ever moved. Uh, so I, have, I, had, I had no time or energy to think about any of this for about 30 days. But in the last two months, I have been thinking. I've been reflecting a lot in the way your, suggestion, your question suggests. Um, so I guess I, I would say two or three things, but I'll be brief. The first one is I've been musing a great deal about um, the, the privilege I've had to witness extraordinary people, extraordinary operations, and extraordinary changes. And, and the last one, in many ways, is the most vivid to me. I think anybody, particularly in, in the US government, but I suspect any government, who can remember, can cast their mind back to how we did counterterrorism 19 years ago. Mm. I, I, you know, I was, I, as you remember, I was a squadron commander at the time, oh, uh, yeah. lieutenant colonel, and I, I can, I can remember how I did CT back in right after 9/11, and then I compare it mentally to how we do counterterrorism today. I mean, I, I, I've, I've come to the point I really dislike the use of the word transformation in government circles because mm. so often transformations don't transform anything, but so it is true. the right word. This is the right word for what I'm trying to describe here. The transformative journey that I have witnessed, whether it's inside the special operations community, the broader United States military, the broader United States government, and even internationally, has been breathtaking. Now, of course, have we screwed up a bunch of things along the way? Of course we have. But we learned from every mistake. And the, the way in which, particularly in kinetic CT, I don't want to contradict myself from earlier, we haven't made a, this kind of journey in non-kinetic CT, but in kinetic CT, it has been an absolutely magnificent journey. And it, I draw enormous personal satisfaction from having once been a participant in that. Number two, um, the, even though what I'm about to say is kind of a subset of what I just described, it's so important I'm going to separate it out for specific mention. It is now a tradition in the United States government 
to do things as an interagency. We're not perfect at it. You know, there, there are probably a lot of people listening to this podcast who are thinking, oh, don't give yourselves too much credit, Nagata. Well, yeah, it, it's not perfect. But we have come so far in recognizing that the United States government is best when it operates as a team, not as a, as a collection of individual agencies or, or organizations that, are, that you know, just operate independently, don't really care what my, my American partners are doing, don't even wanna know, I just do what I do. And of course, as you know very well, as many of your listeners know, it led to so much internal conflict and f- unintended fratricide, and and you know, and what we were foregoing without realizing it was we weren't enjoying something that you hear in other walks of life. That that people are best when they recognize that when when we're operating properly the whole is more than just the sum of the parts. It took us a long time to realize that in the United States government, but 19 years has been a long time. And so now when I compare how, how well do we strive towards this whole, the whole is going to be more than just the sum of the parts, we're not perfect, we still have a long way to go. But, but the improvements we've made as operating like a team have been profound. We have to keep going. The last thing is um, is something that I suspect anybody who's ever retired from a career in government or military service, service always reflects on. I find myself thinking about this multiple times every day, uh, and that is um, how both how lucky I have been and how grateful I will be for the rest of my life. I suspect until my dying day that I had the privilege, the extraordinary privilege of working with people like you, my special operations brothers and sisters over several decades, other people across the U.S. military, across the U.S. government, many people in this town. I did four tours in Washington, D.C. But just as importantly, the allies, the partners, the, um, the indigenous forces, just the people I've had the opportunity to work with, come in contact with, and to some degree experience their difficulties, their challenges, and their triumphs. Um, it is perhaps this last thing I've just said that I savor the most. Well, General Mike Nagata, thank you for your service to the nation. I was grateful to have had the opportunity to work with you. I'm better for it, and your impact on special operations forces is significant and lasting. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to thank Pessimist Archive and Warby Parker for their support of SpyCast. You can listen to Pessimist Archive podcasts wherever you enjoy your podcasts, and head to warbyparker.com spycast to order your free home try-on. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, 
and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Mm-hmm.